The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I sat down with well-known aviation personality, Charles Darby, who spent a lot of time in the early days rescuing and collecting aircraft, both up in Papua New Guinea and from Rukahia. Also with us on the day was Bevan Dews, 
This episode was recorded in August 2019, just a few days after the well-known aircraft collector John Smith of Mapua had passed away, and Charles started off reminiscing about John Smith. When did you say you um, met John Smith? Met John probably at about 1959, 60, um, because um, I used to go down to Rukahia and look at the hawks down there and try and identify what they were all about and got to the stage where I thought it would be nice to get one, have a collection of aeroplanes. And by that time I suppose I'd been been in the late teens, very early twenties. And then one day this other fellow turned up um, and he said he he wanted to collect it and get a kitty hawk too. Um, We've met him there, it's going back quite a while now. Probably met him there two or three times, and uh, we did start. I helped him to um, dismantle one of the, one or both of his kitty hawks. Um, can't remember much about, about it. I mean, you do what you do with old aeroplanes. One story I do remember: we um, uh, he'd come up to Auckland for some reason. I can't remember why. After a Rukahia trip and we lived over at Birkdale on the North Shore then. So that naturally just invited him to come round for dinner, um, which he duly did. And we talked quite late, as one does. And my mother said, no, you're pretty late, would you like to stay the night? Yeah. And John said, oh, no, no thanks, I'll, um, I'll get moving. So we waved goodbye to him at the door and, and saw him get into his stuff fiddling around with his little Morris Minor car and shut the door and went to bed. In the morning there was the car still there and John had slept in the car. <laughs> Didn't like to put us out. Wow. So, typical of him. Wow. Um, now you mentioned the Morris Minor. I'm told that when he took aircraft down from Rukahia he just had a trailer on the back of the Morris Minor. Mm. Wow. Um, um, one wing, one wing at a time, fuselage. Off he went, back down to Mapua. Came up again a few weeks later and got the other wing, and all behind the old Morris Miner. That's dedication, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And don't forget, this was early 1960s, and it's, uh, everyone thought he was completely mad. Silly old fool, what's he doing with <laughs> scrap metal? Just getting it across on the ferry each time must have been quite expensive. I imagine it was. I, mean, I did go over on the ferry obviously but it's a long while later before I was towing aircraft across on the ferry. Yeah. It was 1970s. This is 10 years before that. John was a great character and a, a brilliant mind on it. Now he, he liked to appear as a country bumpkin, slow speaking country bumpkin. No. <laughs> and he'd, um, he'd jump you with all sorts of questions, anything from astrophysics or gun-laying radars, plant pathogens and on apples, because I did a degree in plant pathology, but um, so you know we'd talk about that. But very far-reaching and critical mind. Brilliant guy. That's really interesting because most people just see him as the hermit with the aircraft collection sort of thing. 
and to find out that he's you know that sort of intellectual was yeah. and that was you know, well into the 80s or 90s I went around to see him once with my uh, I guess she's my wife's sister-in-law yeah wife's sister-in-law um, and that didn't phase John at all just chatted away quite normally to her And she was a bit concerned about him, might sort of freaking out with a woman on the property or something. <laughs> His reputation had spread around the district. It's just normal. So he, when when did he get the mosquito? Was that quite a bit before you started looking into? Mm. I think it must have been about 1956 or 57. Okay, 58 yep. maybe. But um, I mean, obviously when they were he did tell me, it was either him or someone who was with him at the time told me that he, he bought the mosquito and then the, the, the narc that was looking after them said, oh, you're going to have to get rid of it by the end of the week or we'll burn it. So he came back at night and he went to see one of the neighbouring farmers. He said he could put it on the property. So he went, went back at night with, with bolt cutters and snipped the airfield boundary fence towed, <laughs> towed it over onto the farmer's property and apparently the um, Air Force guys came up when he was trying to get the fence back together oh. <laughs> they told him not to bother just get it clear off so oh really <laughs> wow one of life's characters that's quite dedication he would have only been a fairly young guy at that stage well, probably Early? Oh no, not that, not that old. No. Um, well, he, if he's 85 now, yeah. um, what would that be? Make him born about 1937. Yeah, so he'd only been about 20 something. 20 so 37. Yeah. yeah. 37 to 57. 20, 20, 21. Yeah. I wonder what inspired him to. That's that. A young guy that young to. Go and rescue the aircraft. Don't know. He, he grew up in Devonshire, or born in Devonshire, and I guess grew up at least to um, sub teenage in Devon, and there were an awful lot of aircraft around in Devon. My earliest real memories of aircraft was seeing a field full of Stirlings in Devonshire. Okay. And I didn't know they were Sterlings at the time, but they were just unmistakable in my mind. You know, these great big aircraft canted up like that. So, are you English as well? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So, when did you come? A long story from that too. Um, now, my mother was. My parents were in Singapore at the, when the Japs invaded and. Dad was, um, well, family had been in Malaya for a long, long time, and uh, as one did in those days, the, the English gentleman joined the Malay regiment, which was sort of like, uh, well, it's pretty close really to a, a, a U.S. National Guard unit, um, and it was actually a Malay, it's counted as a, a regular Malay force regiment, not part of it only um, peripherally associated with the British Army, uh, which actually gives me a right to a Malaysian passport. Right. 
Um, but mum got, uh, mum was pregnant with me, probably damn near nine months pregnant, and she got kicked out on the last of the refugee ships out of Singapore. And I was born a few days after they got to England. Okay. So that's how I got there. Wow. Mm. And how, how long did you live in England before you came here? Um, after the dead survived the Japanese prison camps on the Siam Burma Railway, and I, I took him a. Well, he's a pretty sick man for many years after the war, but in the late 1940s we went to Sri Lanka and India for a while and then back to England, but it hadn't got any warmer and the job situation hadn't got any better. Uh, and one of Dad's brothers, who was a very senior guy in the Malay customs, uh, he also got put in the bag, but he was in Changi uh, jail through the war. And the Malay customs after the war gave him uh, a couple of years recuperation anywhere he wanted to go, and he chose New Zealand and told us that it was a pretty good place. He stayed up in Wangaroa most of the time. And recuperated, and that was the main reason that we came here. Rather than we didn't want to go to Canada, so it was too cold. Yeah. South Africa, even back then, Dad could see you know, apartheid troubles looming. Yeah. Caribbean was too small, so I came here. How did you get interested in the aircraft? Was that in England or here, or probably England? Her mother was very interested in aircraft. She always liked aircraft. Knew a bit about them. Okay. Um, she said she took me out to see a, a B-17 raid that was forming up and streaming over our house in England. And I think I can remember it. But um, it could also be imagination from what she told me. Uh, but I can certainly remember the Stirlings and then um, we went to some other air base. I don't know how or why. But um, they put me in an Oxford, so it's the first aircraft that I climbed into was an Oxford. Then I used to play on the aircraft wrecks, because there are lots of aircraft wrecks around southern England. Okay. Pick up bits of doodlebugs and so on, cart them home. So that was the initial thing that obviously led to you wanting to go down to Rooker here and looking at the wrecks there? Yeah, um, when we came to New Zealand, we got a house in Takapuna, um, rent, just a rental, and then bought the house in Birkdale, which overlooked Fenuapai, right under the Fenuapai circuit, so that sort of kept the interest going, I guess. Wow. Okay. Mm. So what can you tell me about uh, Rooker here when you first went there? Been pretty well cleaned out. Old Jack Larson used to... He, he, well, first off, of course, he's, he started by selling the fuel yep. and then drank the profits from there and then moved on to the next biggest, started on the biggest aircraft, which were the Venturas, and basically just went down and down in size. Um, and when I, first time I got there, there, were, there was half a Corsair balanced on top of a pile of pipes and tubing and just general systems junk, but the rest of it was all kitty hawks. Oh, there were all the I said all, but there were 
probably a hundred or so Corsair engines there too. Um, then there were, from memory, about a hundred and two hundred and three Kitty Hawks there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so that was fun for a kid because I didn't have my driving license and was too young to get a driving license in those days. And Mum used to take me down. She'd sit and read a book whilst I, I was in heaven going through all the... Yeah, it was actually. They were awesome days. It's the right word. And then somehow you came up with the idea that rather than just go and visit them, you wanted to get one. Mm. How did... Yeah. Uh, was the... I think the Transport Museum must have started at about that time, so that would have been about 1962. And the first... I knew Merv Sterling, and he apparently... Uh, he knew I was interested in aircraft, of course. And the, the person who was got the nod to form the aviation division was the then chief engineer of Air New Zealand. So he called me one day and said, would I be interested? So I'd yeah, be interested and toddled along. Um, and then Bob McGarry turned up too. He was in the Air Force at the time. Um, and we put together this idea to, to get a P-40. Okay. Um, it's a long story about that too. But perhaps one of the more interesting Asides to that story, uh, Larson wanted, I think, about £250 for a P-40 Hulk, no engine. That was way beyond my means. Um, it wasn't MOTAT, it was the Aviation Historical Society. Nothing to do with MOTAC, they probably didn't exist at the time. So it's Aviation Historical Society and Bob and I were both members of that. Um, and the, we talked to Derek Woodhall about it and he said, oh no, we, we couldn't approve of that because we're not an incorporated society and um, if, if it falls off the back of a truck and injures anyone then all the members will be liable sort of thing. So that triggered the Aviation Society into becoming an, an incorporated society. So that's a bit of an aside. But Jack Larson let us swap weight for weight of scrap metal for a Keyhawk. Oh, right. Um, and the Ardmore Training College gave us a couple of an Allison, a couple of Allison and Merlin engine hulks that they'd stripped and put together and stripped. Uh, just bits left. And we learned of another Kitty Hawk wreck in Hamilton. Went and had a look at that, and the lady gave us that. She said it was, um, uh, you know, that she'd got it for the kids playing when they were young, but they'd all grown up and moved on now. Um, it was a P40K, quite interesting. It's just the fuselage. I think it had been basically only the cockpit section, no wings. Yeah. I mean, you'd grab it now, but it was just. With all the complete kitty hawks, this was just a hulk. So that went on the pile, um, and then years later, must probably 20 years later, wife's interested in genealogy, and so am I for that matter. 
and I walked in and she was sitting where you are now and another lady was in the room talking to her and I was introduced to this lady and I can't remember her name offhand, could find it and I said oh I knew someone like that, they, they family lived in Hamilton and they went to see them once you know years and years ago and they gave me an old kitty hawk Hulk and she said yeah I was their daughter and I used to play in that oh. Oh, wow, it's more yeah. Like, yeah, it's weird. So that's the kitty hawk. We may as well record this too. Bob and I wanted to get the Wairarapa Wildcat because that was there too. <coughs> but it was sort of in the middle of all the kitty hawks. And I think I went overseas at that time. I can't quite remember where. One of my trips. And Bob McGarry, I think he went to Singapore or something on Air Force duty. And the Aviation Society troops said, "Oh, we'll we'll go and get it for you while while we're away and move it over to Aussie James' uh, place because Aussie said we could keep it there for a little while until we brought it back to Auckland." Um, and when we got back, we found that they'd just got the nearest aircraft to the to the road, which was 3009. Right. Probably the least interesting Kitty Hawk of all of them, because it had an accident early on in its career at Masterton, and it wasn't repaired for years and years. Um, and eventually, the quite a, a no, a few of the Kitty Hawks last and broke up, but then he sold them to Asplin. Asplin carted them up the road, chopped the wings off to cart them up the road, all except one, which John Smith's got. Um, and so Wildcat got its wings chopped off, but that aircraft actually survived through to early 1980s, which not a lot of people know. And I begged bloody Maytat to go and get it, when I didn't want it, because I already had a kitty hawk. And the Maytat didn't want it because they thought they'd got mine, which they you know that saga. So it got scrapped. Oh. And 3213 got scrapped. That was the one that had the swastikas on it as well as the Japanese victory flags. So it was sad. Yeah. Did you collect many parts and stuff as well when you got the aircraft out of them? Not a lot. I mean, it was a complete aeroplane, right. virtually. Yeah. Um, wings hadn't been cut off, it didn't have an engine, and that didn't have engine bearers or, or wheels or cockpit seat, but I mean, it had everything else. No instruments, of course. No instrument power, either, but no, it did need a bit of restoration, but not a lot. Uh, but when Asplins folded up, or when, when the council told him to shift out, they didn't want the scrapyard just right on the edge of town, he sold up and um, Kermit Weeks and myself and Ross Jarrett um, bought out the aircraft parts from him and took whatever we wanted. Basically, and Ross, of course, concentrated on Corsair stuff, and I concentrated on 
B40 stuff and Kermit got a, a 40, 40 foot container full of bits that he said he'd like. And so that sort of set you up for later when you created the um, Pacific mm. Restoration mm. Company. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, we, we might get onto that soon, but um, I'm interested in how you ended up going to PNG for um, recovering the aircraft up there with uh, Monty and. Um, it's a long story. Um, I was at university for about 10 years after sort of going through a series of degrees um, and at the end of which I, I um, ended up with a PhD and a PhD in those days you, you presented your thesis and then you got questioned the, the university would get an, an expert in that field from somewhere and that person would come in and question you about your thesis. Um, the chap who questioned me had come from Australia. Um, and that and that was pretty much the, the, the end of my uh, you know, the PhD process. He said he was happy enough with it and that was it. So quite a, a full on period leading up to that. And then I, in the evening I got a, we probably only just got a telephone at that stage. Uh, and a phone call came in and an American voice started. Um, he wanted to speak to me and picked up the phone and he started off by saying, I hear you can get me a, a P-39 Sunny. <laughs> Which <laughs> I must have been in a fairly stroppy mood because I just had a pretty full-on couple of weeks. And this yeah, and the Mariposa, you know, the old Matson line of Mariposa, she was in port at the time. And I thought, there's some bloody yank having me on. And I said, I'll get your whole bloody squadron if you want. And he said, why don't you do that, Sonny? And the conversation got more and more rude for a few minutes. And eventually it dawned on either of, on both of us that, hey, this guy might be for real. And it dawned on him that maybe I could because he'd already found out that I, I had been to New Guinea and sort of knew what I was talking about there. Um, so the conversation got a bit more polite after that. And, and I can't remember what's in that conversation. No, they're probably follow-up conversations anyhow. But I said, well, it's New Guinea and Solomon Islands is not something that you are probably used to. And I want you to come out and have a look for yourself and just see the conditions. Um, so he duly, Dave Talishay duly came out and we met in Fiji and um, took him up through the Solomons and um, no, only, only got as far as the Solomons within actually because uh, took him took him to Balalai and, um, over to Neela there was a big mission station at Neela, which is where we were staying. We'd arranged all the places to stay and so on before that. And um, just a little story from there. There was a, a Betty that 
locals told us had crashed on a nearby island and Dave wanted to see it but there was only one person in on Shortland in the Shortland Islands that had an outboard motor for his canoe so Quentin found this guy and Dave said could he uh, could this fellow take him over to see this Betty on the island tomorrow the fellow said no I can't because I'm doing something with grandma my grandmother tomorrow and we were leaving the following day so it had to be the next day or not at all and I watched Dave go up offering scores of dollars I don't know how much but it would have been two years wages or something for this guy uh, to take him over the next day but I said no I've said I'll do something for my grandmother and that's it <laughs> I'm not going to upset grandma <laughs> so Dave didn't get his his trip across wow. I went out you know, later on um, another trip and it was pretty badly smashed up and I've got a beautiful photo of Dave the, the airport transport between Neela and, and Balalay was a dugout canoe and I got a photo of him sitting up the front of this dugout canoe with a Pan Am timetable. <laughs> so incongruous. <laughs> so had you been up to New Guinea previously with your studies in, in botany? And um, no, not not for that reason. Dad had been to New Guinea before, um, or he was, he was there before, my father, been there before the war because he was a bit of a world traveller. Um, he started off life as a an international cop in Shanghai, um, and that proved to be a bit of a, a scam. So he went to the Philippines for a little while, and then down to Australia. And uh, in Australia, he heard that carpenters were hiring people to manage coconut plantations in this place called New Guinea, um, and the family had been in rubber plantations in. Uh, in Malaya, so Dad knew what knew his way around managing plantations. So he and another fellow went along, or he went along to carpenters, and someone else there, a chap called Errol Flynn, and they both got hired um, and sent to rebel for training. And then Dad was assigned to a plantation in the Ninigawa Islands, and Errol Flynn, I think, to New Ireland, somewhere like that. But they became quite good mates, um, and Dad really loved it there, and he loved New Guinea. And as a kid, he showed me the stamps with the bird of paradise on them. And it just sounded a magic place. And Mum had quite an adventurous friend who had also been a, a guest of Hirohito in Changi Camp during the war. After the war that lady um, decided she'd like to go to Japan and see what the country was like and how many people would want to do that after spending three years in a Japanese prison camp yeah, that's right. but she did and she loved it and um, anyhow a few years later she said find somewhere adventurous for us to go and I said why not go to New Guinea I'll come with you <laughs> so they took me along as baggage boy oh, right. um, and loved that and of course look found lots of aircraft along the way. Okay. So, um, and Stan Smith was flight engineer on Air New Zealand Electras at that time. 
he was friends with Leo Gay, who was chief design engineer on the Northrop F-20, and um, got talking, I mean, Stan and I, I knew each other, and Stan talked to Leo, but Leo was a friend of Dave Talashay, so he passed the word on to Dave Talashay that hey, he was somebody that knew about aircraft in New Guinea, so that's how that... So that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> and then obviously after he'd been out there with you to the Solomons, you got contracted to go and look for planes and... and yeah, well, I, I said, look, I want one of your guys to come along with me. And he, he had a, a New Zealand guy, Monty Armstrong, working with him, so Monty got the nod to come out. And... Um, oh, the first aircraft I showed Dave was a zero underwater and he couldn't dive but that's it and that's what it is he said I can't look at it so I went and dived on that and that's another story with that one but he wanted it salvaged so immediately so I told Monty to salvage, stay there and salvage it and I took Dave on um, and of course in those days Monty didn't know anything about custom land ownership and so on and as soon as it came out of the water all hell broke loose with everybody saying oh, custom ownership it's mine you didn't ask and, and we looked at it and found that it was actually more than 30 feet below low tide levels so it was not custom land it was owned by a salvage dealer but you try telling that to custom land and the thing just basically rotted away over the next 10 years on the beach so it disappeared um, yeah, and I said I'd put together this trip, and for my pay, I, I wanted a kitty hawk of my choice. Dave was happy with that. Okay. So, how many aircraft did you manage to get out of there in the end? I don't know, it's about 25 or 30, I think. I got um, a dozen P 39s. So you did get him the squadron. <laughs> I did get him a squadron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said I would. And I did. Um, and uh, probably half a dozen P40s, A20, half a dozen Beauforts. And Is it some Spitfires. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, some Spitfires, a couple of boomerangs. But he said he didn't want the boomerangs. He didn't want the Spitfires. Got some Japanese aircraft too. No, I don't want those. Nobody's interested in Japanese aircraft. <laughs> so we, Monty and I, brought the boomerangs and Spitfires back here. Um, and that occupied me for going up and down for a year or so. But I, one of the local engineers here, engineering consultants, had called me and asked me to do an environmental impact report on a small development for them, which I did, so I started earning a bit of money at that time too, so I had to come back here as well as doing trips up there. So did you did you end up with a P-40 from those trips, like tell us you, but Yeah. Which one was that then? A-29-448 which is the one that um, GAC, you know, oh, the, yes, the one that Garth Hagen and I 
and been flying for years, and then um, uh, Frank and Liz have got it now. So what condition was that in when you were covering? Basically just a fuselage. Um, fuselage was good, it wasn't badly corroded. Had nothing forward of the firewall, or no, no power plant, no landing gear, no wings. I got wings off off another P-40, got wings off an American P-40, brought back from New Guinea for it. But by that time we were rebuilding 3009 for um, the Hannahs, Ray Hanna. And the battle with MOTAP was ongoing, so I swapped wings um, and 3009 got American wings and I put other wings on four four eight. Okay. So the wings that are still on four four eight were not its original wings. Okay. I've got a note somewhere what they did come from, but, but it wasn't four four eight. And they're not they're not um 3009's wings then either. No. Oh, so it's just that Um, and of course, you're talking about the restoration there, you set up Pacific, Pacific Aircraft Restorations, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. um, at Ardmore, and that's what is now Pioneer. Mm. Now tell me about setting that up and the aims and... Oh, um, Jim Pavitt was, well Jim Pavitt and I got together with the Harvard 1099. And then after I got 3009 back from Mota and all that, shambles was over. Well, during that, I must have decided to set up a, a, a P40 rebuild company for it. Um, and we had to build, a, build up a static P40 for Mota as part of the agreement. contract to sell it to Ray Hanna so, um, but we're grossly underfunded there's never any real capital flow um, Jim or I never got a penny out of it and just kept pouring money into it got absolutely not a dollar out of it um, we got 45 which came from Iron Range. Now that was the one that allegedly a P-47 had landed on at Iron Range and killed the P-40 pilot because um, it landed on top of it and skimmed the cockpit off and took off this guy's head. Uh, well, Grumpy Ron had from, um, who's now at Caboltra, doing the Beaufort for, uh, you know, Grumpy Ron had got that. Uh, and we got it from him when he was still down at Melbourne. But looking at it, that didn't have any top fuselage damage. So, if the, if that P-47 incident really happened, it wasn't with that aircraft. So yeah, eventually, um, with Pacific Aircraft, we just couldn't carry on. So didn't have any, didn't have enough cash flow, and. 
I still had the A29 448, of course. We had a contract to rebuild 306, or to do 105 306 for Chris Prevost. Um, what else? There was another Kitty Hawk sculling around. Which was basically only a spare ship. Um, and we picked mm -hmm. up other stuff in Australia and so on. And then Garth was interested and he turned up one day, asked if a, we had a kitty hawk that was asking about the possibility of him getting a kitty hawk. Yeah. And it basically ended up, he took over the company, which was really worth nothing apart from a few tools, basic tools, and the value was all in the people. Um, and he and I became partners to get 448 flying, and he turned it into Pioneer Aero Restorations Limited, which finished off the um, 3009 for the Hammers. Right, okay. And then when Garth more or less got fed up with the skullduggery and bullshit of the aircraft industry and went back to his first love of cars. Um, that's when Steve and Paul took over and that's Pioneer Aero Limited, not Pioneer Aero Restoration. Right. And that's 10 years this month since they took over. Really? Is it? Yeah. Time flies. Time sure does, yeah. <laughs> mm. Right, so that's... Uh, that's a lot of history there. Pioneer must be about on their 15th P40 now. A lot of P40s that are... Yeah. A lot of P40... Most P40s flying, are, their systems came from Rooker here. Not, not all of the holes, but most of the systems. Any P40 you name, they came from Rooker here. And... Some of the identities of them... Um, I, I understand that you collected data plates off some of the, so you basically rescued those identities that are now got clear got, When it became clear they were going to get scrapped, I got as many data plates as I could. Okay. So how many did you manage to get? Data plates? Oh, 40, 40 or 50, something like that, I guess. Wow. Okay. I've still got quite a lot, but about 20 of them. I sold off to a guy called Michael Rabelaud in the States, him you may have heard of. Right, yeah. He's done a lot of, um, he appears to be doing good work on um, new building parts, system, big parts, yeah. with um, like CAD design and big milling machines. Something that Pioneer Pacific and Pioneer have always tried to avoid doing, so they've always tried to put in as much original materials as possibly can. And they've always had a policy of doing, uh, running the original plumbing and pipe work. When you're doing the wings, you put the original wiring in, even if they don't want the armament systems. Put it in. Okay. Sooner or later, they're going to want it or something like that. Actually, that reminds me that with uh, CAG, you actually had you installed the working guns in that, mm. and also in your harbour as well. Mm. 
was it why why would you how did you come up with that idea just to make it most authentic or with the Harvard um, the guns were, probably would have worked but we didn't check them out to make sure they would say that they were not really not truly live oh, okay. they were complete but not truly live yep. in the harbour Kitty Hawk they, they were live so we ran them past um, Garner Ashford yep. and he checked them out all he found wrong with them was um, two or three of them had rusty springs in the return in the buffer group okay. apart from that he said they all checked out as um, he, he, he would have signed them out as um, combat ready guns the only thing he would have done he said is to require them to be inspected more frequently than usual because of their history because four of them came out of the sea <laughs> two out of a p-39 in nandy bay which is still there and two out of a p-38 in the solomons which is also still there wow that's amazing yeah and one out of an a-20 up in the sarawagat range and one um got the casing of the gun from Rooker here. I can't remember how, I think someone just gave it to us and then just put the bits in it to make it complete. That was the only gun that ever gave trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the ones from the ones out of the water and the ones out of this A20 that slammed into the hills. They've never given any real trouble. Mm. And did you actually fly yourself? Were you a pilot yourself? No, I'm never terribly interested. I'm more interested in the engineering. I'm more interested in looking out. And I figure, you know, if you're flying down low and you're the pilot, that's a good idea to pay attention to what the aeroplane's doing rather than looking at the scenery. Another uh, aspect, too, is the books that you've written. Um, RNZF, The First Decade, and uh, Pacific Rex, I think was the second one, wasn't it? Mm. And yeah. then one on B-24s. I haven't seen that. Haven't you? No. Okay. I'll have to look out for that one. No, a copy here. Okay. Show you later. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, great books. Really good books. And they're, they're quite rare and quite sought after. Mm. I've got a few Pacific wrecks left. I actually have about half a dozen of the RNZAF First Decade books left. Really? that's all on those and I suppose I got about 10 or 12 maybe a few more of the Pacific wrecks okay. when you were doing the first decade um, in those days there wasn't a lot out there of photos um, of the RNZF and it must have been quite difficult to work out what to put in the book and what to leave out because there's so much history there. Um, it, you know, did you did you have sort of a a process there where you thought, oh, I wish I could put this one in, but uh, it's not going to fit or anything like that? Not really. Um, <coughs> I think the the photos that were in it were in it were enough to show the story. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to have informative captions yes. rather than write a lot of guff. Yeah. I thought it was better for someone to be, somebody to be able to look at a picture and, and there's the story about it. And, and okay, the, the next 
picture of the next Ventura might tell you a little bit more about the story of Venturas and by the time you've looked at all ten pictures you've sort of got the story of Venturas in New Zealand yes. rather than having a chapter of Waffle. Yeah, yeah, true. Mm. Yeah. In the Pacific Rex book you obviously took all those photos while you're up doing the recoveries. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. And um, it's actually Jeff Pentland taught me into doing that. Uh, I, I think this is, I actually wrote this in the foreword to the book. My first trip to Australia, yep. I went to Canberra because I wanted to get into the Aussie records. And driving around and came up to a, an intersection, or got stopped um, before I got to an intersection with a, a traffic jam and wandered up to see what was going on and a couple of cars had collided on the intersection. And somebody else was uh, standing there, also caught up. And we got talking, um, and um, must have picked my accent. I probably had a Pommy accent at that stage. <laughs> and asked what I was doing in Canberra, and I said, oh, I um, made arrangements to go to the air department to look through the, their, their records of their historical aircraft. He said, oh, I've been trying to do that for years. <laughs> and that was Jeff Pentland. And um, so we stayed in touch all the years, and he and he knew I'd obviously I knew I'd um, he'd been up to New Guinea too because he he got an aircraft out in New Guinea. Okay. Zero two seat zero. Now that zero trainer. Jeff Pentland, Barry Corran got that out. Um, wow. So he knew what he was doing in New Guinea too. And so he was quite interested in that book. So when I put it together, I just sent the draft over to him. And he, but he, he messed around with it and put photos out of order, which messed up my captioning system. And he also changed one of the two of the captions and what really infuriated me, he got words, grammatical words wrong and a couple of spelling errors and I... That really annoyed me, but it was a it was a good lesson that um, anything in, in in my professional work to any report that went out with my name on it, I said I want the final approval. Um, quite happy to, for you know, in fact I wanted criticism because you can't proofread your own work. And if somebody didn't like something, that was fair enough. But I don't want anyone tinkering with it after I've said. Okay, I'm happy with it. Yeah. And if everyone's happy with it, then that's it. Nothing gets changed after that. Right. So that was a good lesson. <laughs> you got any questions, Ben? No, I think pretty much covered it. Some pretty amazing stories early on. It was probably slightly older than you were back when you started recovering aeroplanes, and that's kind of my passion is the World War II airplanes as well. Recovering Well, I haven't really ever had a chance to kind of get into that side of things. It seems quite difficult now with all the politics and bureaucracy. But, mm. yeah, to be able to get to the point of rebuilding an airplane and getting it to actually live again is mm. something that I'd love to achieve one day. I think that's one of the big things that motivates the guys that um, 
at Ardmore by the fact that it can take a heap of shattered wreckage and get it right through to flying and, and if it stays around they can actually look after it and fly in it. Yeah, get it to live again. Bevan mm. so has been flying a P-40 sort of an experience. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to fly the really early aeroplanes and, mm. and then to fly the next generation being the World War II aircraft as well. Mm. It's, it's an amazing transformation between those 15, 20 years. Mm. Mm. How's the, how's Doug Hamilton's P-40 set up and what sort of an instrument panel has it got on it? Um, he's got what would be the early panel without the AH in it, in the front. Mm. Because um, the N5s of course had almost nothing, they had no gyro instruments mm. and then it didn't last long. Yeah, put them all back in again. Put them all back in again. Yeah, but <coughs> the N1s didn't have the AH in them either, did they? And they stripped them out in the but N1s and then put them... No, I wasn't sure. I thought most of them would have had the AA, had the early time. Four four eight's got a K a late K model panel in it actually, but it's pretty much the same as an M and N anyhow. But yeah, and then the back seat's just kind of a basic instrument mm -hmm. panel, slightly mm -hmm. more so than what um, CAG's got. It's mm -hmm. got 
most of the instruments except the radio was it that direction finder thing that they had? RDF. The RDF thing, yeah. Up in the how yeah, they've got that in the left hand side of the panel normally. They don't mm. have that in the back seat. But everything else, all the engine mm. temperatures and pressures mm. and altimeter. Yeah. No, I was more interested in, in whether he'd try to try to keep it as an N one or, or because <coughs> as an N five because you know, as you, you know and as Dave said, the N fives got demodified towards the earlier types pretty quickly. Mm, yeah, so yeah, he hasn't put the NH back in or anything, and presumably hasn't got the weak axles in it either. Oh, he's got the the 27 inch. Mm, but the N5 had thin, had small axles. Yeah, I would imagine. They used to keep breaking. Uh, yeah. yeah, have the beefy. I think by the time they got to the N25, they were back where they started. Mm. <laughs> yeah, lightening them up probably would have worked if they weren't operating off Marsden matting and all that sort of mm. rough, terrible stuff. Mm. From the instruments and everything, you you definitely see how they'd lose them without an AH. Yeah. The moment you get into cloud, you're just mm-hmm. buggered. Mm-hmm. Did you get um, over the years with particularly with your book and recovering the airplanes? Did you get a lot of contact from veterans who've flown uh, P40s or other stuff during the war and get to know actual RNZ veterans? No, you didn't, didn't get much there. I thought you might have got, you know, particularly after the book came out, I thought there might have been a lot of people say, oh, here's, a, here's some photos and here's some photos. No. Nothing. Oh, that's a shame. Hmm. Had more from Aussies with the B-24s. Oh, really? Quite a few Aussies have come out of the woodwork. It's a quite interesting guy. Met a guy at, um, oh, about six or eight years ago at Wanaka. Remember one of the Wanaka shows, they had a... Um, a sort of an area with chairs set up and tables and so on where veterans could go and sit and meet, talk to other veterans. I went along there uh, to meet somebody and that, that somebody was sitting talking with somebody else and he introduced this guy as um, an, an Australian who'd um, flown Hudson's. So he chatted about Hudson's for a little while and then the the Aussie guy said, oh, I didn't fly Hudson's very much after all. Um, most of my time was on B-24s. <laughs> <laughs> and he was quite a well-known B-24 skipper. And he lives up in Kai Tai. He was the skipper of Ace, Ace 7299, I think. It's in the, in the book, isn't it? Yeah. And his, his wife was a was a WAF who started her Air Force career at White Pepper Carey. Okay, yeah, yeah. So she would have had a lot of stories too, or probably still have, I think she's still alive aren't they? Okay. But, you know, those early days of the radar operations from WIPAP, that must have been yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, I've talked to a few guys that were based up there with the Vincents and um, Radar Wildebeest. Yeah. Interesting times. I think it was pretty rough and ready. Mm. Yeah. 
I quite like the stories of those those small stations that were remote, like Gisborne or mm. you know they they have a real close knit sort of mm. atmosphere at those places, and Waipapakari is certainly one that yeah it's quite neat. Mm. Well, we'll, we'll probably um, end this here. But Thank you very much for that, Charles. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.